Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead for a lot of migrants making their way to the U.S. and Chicago, they face trauma, and in some cases they're in need of mental health providers. We'll hear how some people are making efforts to help. There are growing concerns about the health conditions in some migrant shelters. A child's death has brought more scrutiny. We'll also hear how the new mental health crisis line 988 is adding a service for the deaf and hard of hearing. How do teachers build relationships with students? How do they develop trust? We'll have that report. Also, if you think winters are getting warmer, well, the numbers show you're right. And the story of a central Illinois man behind a classic Christmas tune. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. More than 25,000 migrants have arrived in Chicago since last year. Many carry the trauma of their harrowing journeys, but there is a shortage of mental health providers to talk to. So a parade of helpers is stepping up. Kristen Schorsch brings us the story. Jorge Rubiano is haunted by the threats against his life back home in Colombia, by being kidnapped for a month as he made his way to Chicago, by not being with his mom when she got really sick. But for example, before you guys came, I was talking with my wife. And she had to cut the connection on the phone because somebody got on the bus and was robbing the bus. My colleague Manuel Martinez is translating. We're sitting on a bench outside a shelter where Rubiano lives with other migrants. He says he mostly keeps his stories to himself. But the stress and anxiety of everything that's happened to him it's so heavy. He wonders if coming here was worth it. He says that he's had a lot of time to think about it, but that he's still stuck in this, these two difficult places. If he returns, there's the likelihood that he'll get killed. And if he stays here, he doesn't know what's going to happen. The thousands of migrants arriving in Chicago are fleeing what social worker Sharon Davila says is misery. Few jobs, little food back home. And for many, their journeys here were treacherous. Every single one of them had an experience that we would consider traumatic. They'll say like, oh, everything's okay, but I do worry that she saw me almost drowning. A preschooler who fell into the river and she landed on her back. And while they were crossing the bridge, where the current is the strongest and the waves were high. The mom is telling me, you know, and she's, the mom is pregnant and she's holding on to her daughter's hand. In other cases, women have paid to get from country to country, not just with money, but with their bodies. Migrant stories are unfolding across the city, but they have so many basic needs that taking care of their mental health just isn't a priority. I heard time and time again, people are in survival mode. They are desperate for work. Still, they carry their grief and pain with them. Laura Papa is a psychologist in Chicago. A lot of people were not expecting that, how hard it is on this side. You know, I've had a lot of parents who've come alone and asked themselves, you know, was it worth it to leave my kids? That's not necessarily something I can answer, but I can totally empathize with the pain. Papa came to the U.S. from Argentina as a teenager. She says for migrants, not dealing with their trauma could have ripple effects. 
Trauma can change the wiring in your brain and make you more vulnerable to depression and anxiety. It can pass down from generation to generation and affect your physical health. But there are many barriers to seeking help, if migrants even want it. One of them is stigma. Here's Papa again. There's a lot of taboo in our culture around mental health. Men are significantly less likely to disclose even negative mood, let alone trauma. Another barrier? The persistent shortage of mental health providers. Getting an appointment can take months. Then layer on being new to this country, speaking a different language, having no health insurance, and struggling to find someone who understands your culture. That's if you even know help exists. This is where an army of volunteers and others are filling in the gaps, including social worker Veronica Sanchez. It's a Monday night in the back of an insurance agency on the southwest side. Sanchez is about to lead a healing circle, a place where people can come to talk about how they're coping. Around 20 migrants pull up chairs. You can smell the dinner that awaits them, arepas and warm homemade chicken soup. On a scale of 1 to 10, Sanchez asks how the migrants are feeling. A woman says her husband was deported, and she's heartbroken she left her children back home. A man says he worked several days that week, but never got paid. Another says he is grateful to God for bringing him to America, but he misses his mom, dad, and brothers. Sanchez soaks it in. She listens, then offers feedback with a smile. She tells them getting a job and reuniting with family is important, but she's concerned about their mental health. She says the healing circle is a safe space where the migrants can share their emotions, despairs, and questions. That here, they won't feel so alone. Sanchez says creating community and connections can empower the migrants. She understands what they're going through. She's one of them. I was seeing the migrants' faces that they were so scared. I'm pretty sure my parents went through that same process of not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing if he was going to come back, not knowing if he was going to find a job, not knowing if he was going to have enough to send money back to us for us to survive. Sanchez grew up in Mexico, and her father left to work in the U.S. when she was four years old. She didn't see her dad for almost seven years when he brought his family to Cicero. Many of the support groups like the one Sanchez led are temporary. Some volunteers get burned out from taking on so much. Migrants prioritize other needs, or the city moves them from place to place. There is a bigger effort underway that other cities have already asked to replicate. And this one has funding. Cafe Comunidad Charlas, so coffee and community, small groups. Amy Halado leads the Coalition for Immigrant Mental Health and helps spearhead these charlas. The coalition, along with other partners, has trained hundreds of people who don't have a medical background to lead these charlas, or support groups, in city-run shelters. These are case managers or outreach workers alongside migrants every day. We have to help people the minute they arrive, and that's actually going to promote healing down the line. One of the worries is the suicide risk among migrants. Back on the bench outside his shelter, Jorge Rubiano from Colombia says he tries to keep busy taking English classes. He's reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Call of the Wild. And he's looking for steady work. He longs for his family, for the chance to bring them here. Once there is a stable life he can offer them. Porque hay días en los que dices, no doy más, me voy. There are days where he's just like, I'm done, I'm leaving. Hay otros días en los que... And there are other days where he just spends a lot of time reflecting and he realizes that not everything is bad. 
Kristen Schorsch, WBEC News. Of those migrants, 14,000 are being housed at 27 temporary shelters across different neighborhoods in Chicago, one of them in the Pilsen neighborhood, and a child died there over the weekend. Some of the families who are staying in that shelter complain about the conditions. Michael Puente reports. No milk for children, no medicine, not enough food. These are just some of the complaints that are leaving two asylum-seeking Venezuelan women feeling regret about leaving their native country. Carmen and Lucy have been living inside the shelter in the 2200 block of South Halsted Street with their children for several months. We are only providing their first names because they fear retaliation from shelter officials. Carmen describes terrible living conditions. I meet up with her blocks away from the shelter. Muy mala. Todos los niños están enfermando. She says it's very bad. All the children are getting sick with cough or fever. We have sewers in the middle of the beds. There are very few bathrooms for the number of people there. Carmen has a seven-year-old son. She says there is never enough food, water, or medical care at the shelter, where up to 2,000 migrants are being housed. She says they give us water once a day, one bottle of water per family or two at the most. There is no milk for the children, and breakfast is cookies and oatmeal without sugar. Cotterman's friend, Lucy, is worried about her asthmatic nine-year-old daughter and that they have not been allowed to see a doctor. She says it's tough to live in such a cramped space. She says it's difficult because there is no privacy at all. They have to be together and she wishes they would put out fruits or yogurt for the children. Lucy says having access to doctors is very important. Right now, she says medical personnel only arrive on Mondays to administer vaccines for chickenpox, not for checkups. She says there are many emergencies with many women who are pregnant and many with very young children. So we need at least one doctor who is there because you see what happened to the child. The child Lucy is talking about is Jan Carlos Martinez Rivero, the five-year-old boy who fell ill at the shelter on Sunday and died. The stress of living in such poor conditions is becoming too much to bear for both women. Carmen says if she could go back to Venezuela, she would. She says, I regret leaving my country. I feel that we are experiencing more hunger and more need, and we do not have medical care. The children are literally in prison because they are not allowed to play. They do not have freedom. Actually, at this moment, I am very sorry for having left my country. Both women were present when little Jan Carlos died. An investigation is underway, but city officials said yesterday that it does not appear the child died from an infectious disease. They acknowledge at least three more children have been hospitalized after becoming ill, but say the incidents are unrelated. Carmen and Lucy say the death of the child is leaving many inside the shelter with heavy hearts. Tonight, many of them will gather for a candlelight vigil for Jan Carlos near the shelter. Organizers are asking for medicine and clothing donations. Michael Puente, WBEZ News. Many hourly workers across Illinois will see a bump in their paychecks starting the first of the year. Mawa Iqbal has more details. 
The state is raising the minimum wage for most workers from $13 to $14 an hour. The minimum wage for tipped workers will increase to $8.40 an hour, while those under age 18 working part-time jobs will get a raise to $12 an hour. The state has been phasing in minimum wage increases since 2019 and has one more to go in 2025 to get it to $15 an hour. Chicago has a higher minimum wage, $15.80 for employees and companies with 21 or more workers. The national minimum wage is just $7.25 an hour and hasn't been raised since 2009. Illinois joins six other states in raising the wage floor by at least $1 in the new year. I'm Mawa Iqbal. At the beginning of the school year, before any learning can happen, teachers have to build a relationship with their students. But how do they build trust? Peter Midland talked with teachers at various grade levels with various years of experience to find out. We've all been through an awkward get-to-know-you activity, going around the room answering icebreaker questions like, name one interesting fact about you. I'm from a town called Sandwich, so it's never been too hard for me, but teachers can't rely on just those simple activities. They have to establish real trust with their students, no matter the grade level. They want students to give their best and be willing to be a little bit vulnerable, too. And the stakes are high. The teachers I talk to all agree, no relationships equal no learning. Kara Pointer is an agriculture teacher and FFA advisor at Sycamore High School. This is her 21st year in the classroom. And she says one of the first questions she asks her students at the beginning of the year is, what did they expect out of their teacher and out of their classmates? If they say they want a classroom that's conducive to learning, you know, and they want their peers to be good listeners and let, you know, their peers are hearing them say that. Pointer says when students feel they've had a say in the rules and expectations for the classroom, that makes everyone accountable, not only to themselves or their teacher, but to each other. And one of her other strategies is actually about building relationships with parents. Within the first nine weeks of school, I try to email every parent something good that's happened within their child. She says too often, parents only hear from a teacher when something has gone very wrong. Their child has failed a test or gotten in trouble. So that way, if I do ever have to give bad news, they've all heard from me once. And I think that if you go home and your parent says to you, hey, you know what, Mrs. Pointer sent me a really nice email about you in class today. They're going to come back to class and they're going to continue to give me that good behavior. Pointer acknowledges she does have a unique perspective as an ag teacher. For one, she teaches an elective, something students choose to take. So they might come into her room with their curiosity piqued. And she also can have students multiple times throughout high school. And she's the FFA advisor, which allows her even more time to connect with that group of students. Michael Buckner teaches fourth grade at West Elementary School in Sycamore. And at the beginning of the year, he has a special activity involving Band-Aids, where he asks his young students to write about the worst injury they've ever had. I have put the Band-Aid on the same spot for every single kid. So a kid might say, you know, I, I broke my arm riding my bike. It's like, okay, where, which arm? Well, my right arm. So I'll put a Band-Aid on their, on their right arm. And then the next kid might say, yeah, I bumped my head when I was jumping on trampoline. And then I put the Band-Aid on his right arm, too. So this is an activity where I, I treat them all the same when they shouldn't be treated the same. So this is a way for us to like talk about how I might treat this student completely different than this student because that's what they need at this very moment. Go up a few grade levels from Buckner's fourth grade class and you'll find Katherine Katz. She's a Sycamore Middle School art teacher and students cycle through her class every quarter. So every nine weeks, all new students, all new relationships to start cultivating. And she has to get to know them quickly and she needs to invite them to make art and be a little vulnerable. 
And she also makes an effort to remember that these are still kids and it's important to let them play, especially when they're expressing themselves with art. We're working with kids who are 11 years old. Like they're still young. They need that. Like they want that, uh, you know, imaginative world still. And so I think not being afraid to foster that, not forcing them to grow up so fast, right? She says one of the perks of middle school, which also makes it an especially turbulent time for so many, is that the kids change a lot over just a few years. From sixth to seventh grade, they can be completely different people. When I think about starting the quarter and I do get those kids over and over, I look at it as a fresh start for them. Of course, time and experience in the classroom have changed her perspective, too. She's a mom now, and over the years, she's gotten more confident asking her students tough questions that can seem simple, like, are you okay? Do you need help? Back in fourth grade, Buckner also knows that building relationships is delicate. As hard as it was to build that trust, you can lose it in a moment. And it's not just the beginning of the school year. They have to show students every single day that they care. And these teachers say that if they don't, no matter how good they might think they are at teaching fractions or phonics, it'll be hard for students to take anything away, but that they didn't care. I'm Peter Mudlin. Still ahead on Statewide, we'll talk with a central Illinois man who goes all out for Christmas. That and more, still ahead. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still to come, we'll tell you about the man from central Illinois behind what was a big Christmas hit song. But first, half of the counties in Illinois are reporting elevated numbers of hospitalizations due to COVID-19. The State Department of Public Health Chief Medical Officer Artie Barnes says they're also up for flu and RSV cases. It seems like we are seeing slightly more hospitalizations than we did last year at around the same time. We are seeing a health system, though, that is better capable and better suited in dealing with that strain. Barnes says people are at greater risk if they're above age 65 or have underlying conditions, such as heart disease or medical treatment that weakens the immune system. Barnes recommends people in high-risk groups get vaccinated for flu and COVID and to get an RSV vaccine if you're pregnant or over 60. Well, despite the winter moving in, a new farm in downtown Rock Island aims to feed immigrants and refugees. Rachel Duckett reports. Sitting in the parking lot of the Quad City Botanical Center, it looks more like a truck than a farm. But inside the container, a hydroponic farm will grow butterhead lettuce, radishes, and more. The farming system was developed by a company called Freight Farms for the local nonprofit Tapestry Farms. Anne McLinn is the executive director of Tapestry Farms. She says the urban farm can grow two to six tons of food per year. The food grown in the container will benefit not only our nonprofit's operations, but will also feed people who face hunger in our community. It was made possible by a grant from the John Deere Foundation. Spokeswoman Laura Eberlin says more people are hungry now than during the COVID pandemic. Food banks in our region are struggling with food donations going down. So they're seeing less retail donations because retailers are becoming leaner with their inventory management. And so what we're seeing is an increase in food costs and an increase of those who need food. And so it's really important that we think about those innovative ways um, to grow food and get more food to people. 
McLean says eventually the hydroponic farm will grow culturally relevant food for immigrants and refugees in the Quad Cities. The first crop will be planted and harvested this winter. I'm Rachel Duckett. A big Christmas lights display on the west side of Normal has been famous for decades. But what would lead someone to put up nearly 1,000 lights every year? Lindsay Jones has the story of the man whose display has now gone viral. Once you reach a certain level of celebrity, people talk about you. He's no A-lister, but Michael Holtz of 1210 Hovey Avenue in West Normal knows what this is like. They're going to think I'm Howard Hughes or something, where I'm just kind of a recluse and, you know, or the Grinch. I'm the Grinch that, that uh, no one knows what, what who I am or what I am. <laughs> There's a chance you might know him from his work. Up until last year, Holtz was a local plumber for more than four decades. But it's more likely that you know of Michael Holtz from his massive Christmas lights display he's been putting together since the 1990s. And at that time, I may have only had 500 things. Uh, There's probably close to 1,000 out here now. You heard that right, 1,000 Christmas lights. If you drive down Hovey Avenue once Holtz has his yard fully decked out, you can see a glowing aura coming from the house from at least a couple of blocks away. The scene prompts many drivers to slow down or break suddenly. I always chuckle when I drive down Hovey Avenue. I don't know now where there are more lights, in his yard or the car light, brake lights, as everyone stops to look at Mike's house. That's longtime Panagraph newspaper columnist Bill Flick. Over the years, Flick has done a spattering of articles on Michael Holtz and his light-laden house. And perhaps that first article is why Michael Holtz rose to fame, or perhaps you could call it notoriety. Somebody just called me and said, hey, you should drive down Hovey Avenue. There's something going on. So I did. He had a neighbor right across the street who had a really nice lighting display. And then you looked across the street, and here were all these plastic polyurethane bubbles lit. But I think it was doing a story on them that generated Mike to really go begin going overboard. Now at more than 1,000 lights strong, Holtz's Christmas displays are bigger than ever. Kind of like the stories about him from people who don't understand what would motivate someone to go to such extremes every year. I've heard one of my kids died. I heard uh, autism. I heard uh, all kinds of different things. As a matter of fact, I even got a friend who I think purposely went out and started a couple rumors just to get a, a laugh out of it. The way Holtz tells it, there is no complicated backstory and little to no truth in the urban legends that surround him. Holtz says the things that motivate him to lug hundreds and hundreds of plastic blow mold figurines out of storage and set them up on the roof and the lawn every year are really quite simple. What you'll hear next isn't Holtz, but rather one of the things he says keeps him going. Megan Robertson of Normal was out with her family one night and stopped by the display with her children, who said they liked... And the gingerbread man hanging over there. Gingerbread on the tree, all hanging from the tree, yeah. Yeah. What'd you like the best? No. Oh, we spotted the Grinch and and, Minnie and Mouse. counted the aliens. Yeah, and that Minnie was cool. Mouse. Yes, yeah. and Minnie and Mickey. And that is what Holt says gets him. Little kids that come by, and you just see the smiles and the happiness, and you think, I gotta keep doing this. So I gotta keep doing this. And as Panagraph columnist Bill Flick posits, that's kind of what Christmas is all about. 
occasionally I might poke a little bit at Mike, but it's all in, in the spirit of what he does. He gives back all that time he spends up on his roof and in his yard. Doing this is a lot of work. Some of the plastic blow molds are at least four feet tall. They have to be hauled out of storage and set up, weighed down so they don't fly away in a wind gust. And then there's the matter of making sure they're lit from within. That requires light bulbs, mileage of electrical cords and surge strips arranged in an intricate, if not precarious, setup. It's enough to make you think, as Bill Flick says. And he's obviously crazy. <laughs> let's, let's get down to it. Some guy puts 1,200 blow molds in his front yard. That's dedication to Lux, and it's also, okay, why would some guy even do that? In between the positive stories, Michael Holtz says there are some real challenges that have dragged him down over the years. One Christmas, Holtz says, the police showed up. Christmas Day. He says a woman saw all of the snowmen in his yard and insisted one of them had been swiped from her yard display. And she came by here and she said, he's, there's no way he's getting this stuff without going out and stealing it from everybody else. And she, there was two cops with her and everything. Holtz says he doesn't have to steal. Most of his inventory was sourced cheaply from garage or estate sales or donations from other people in town who decided to downsize. And while it's certainly not every Christmas that someone shows up with police, that incident underscores how difficult it can be to commit to this every year. I used to have stuff get stolen and vandalized and, and people will throw stuff at my house. You'll get that one out of every 500 people that come by here, they want to mess with you. And after a while, Holtz kind of went dark, even though his lights didn't. He stopped responding to requests for TV interviews. He ignored social media comments that stung. He even dropped a habit of getting dressed up as Santa Claus and waving at cars on Christmas Eve. And you think, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I dress up like Santa and people drive by and call me names and everything. And it's like, oh, <laughs> For some reason, Michael Holtz is still committed to his display as ever, at least for now. He is, after all, in his 60s. No, it's all going to come to an end someday. someday. If I, I, I got to do something about, uh, I either got to take care of my knees or do something because I, I can't keep going up on that roof or I probably will fall off on these days. And that it's hard getting that stuff up there. My kids do help me some. Some community members, including columnist Bill Flick, dread that day. So every late October, I keep wondering, okay, is Mike Holtz out on his roof? And every year, I swear, one year it's going to be not Mike Holt. And that will be a devastating year for, for people like me who love to drive by homes and look at nice jobs of decorating. And probably Michael Holtz dreads that day too, which is why he's kept at this for as long as he has. And a guy told me once, who used to play Santa Claus, I said, where's all the joy at out of it? And he goes, you only get what you put into it. So it, it always struck me that, yeah, he's right. You, you put something into it, you get something back. But if you're, if you're just staring at a wall at Christmas time, it's very depressing. <laughs> and if 1,000 Lights has you wondering about the power bill, Holt says it's not as expensive as you might think. He estimates it costs about $200 extra per month for the holiday season, a cost he's deemed worth it so far. Lindsay Jones with that report. During the holiday season, you may hear a song where Santa is asked to replace someone's two front teeth. The original vocalist on that well-known tune was a trumpet player from central Illinois. In 2017, Jim Meadows looked at the life and career of George Rock.
Christmas is my two front teeth. My two front teeth. See my two front teeth. For starters, that was not George Rock's normal voice, but it was one that he used throughout his career, including on this million-selling recording with Spike Jones and his city slickers back in 1948. At the time, Rock was still in his 20s, still in the early part of his 16-year stint with Jones, whose novelty band was then at its peak. As a slicker, Rock would be called on to use his little kid voice frequently. No, I don't think he, he really said anything in that regard as far as how he developed it or anything. But he was so modest. That's Spike Jones biographer Jordan R. Young, who says, My two front teeth turned George Rock into a minor celebrity. When the record was released in uh, November of 48, one thing that happened was that George started getting all this fan mail, and people were sending him teeth. He got thousands of pairs of teeth in the mail from fans. The DeWitt County town of Farmer City can boast of a congressman and an Illinois Supreme Court justice among its native sons. But George Rock is the one they can hear every December. Rock was born and raised in Farmer City, the product of a musically inclined family. Dean Scarborough, whose family owns the town cemetery, is now in his 90s. He remembers Rock as a boy. You're just a kid. Every place he went, he carried that trumpet. People raised hell because he played that trumpet all the time. Was he good back then? I was a kid. I don't know. George Rock's career as a professional musician began at age 20 when he signed on with a band that came to town to play at the Farmer City Fair. Five years and several bands later, Rock began his long run with Spike Jones and the City Slickers. The Slickers were known for their chaotic-sounding but actually carefully planned-out novelty tunes staged with outrageous sight gags and costumes. Rock, a big man, would often dress in short pants for his little kid vocal numbers. As the band's lead trumpeter, Rock could state the melody with authority and provide a variety of effects, like in this solo from one of his showcase pieces, a setting of the old Ukrainian melody, Minka. concerned, he was a musical inspiration to the band. That's drummer Joe Syracuse, the last surviving musician from the City Slickers' prime years of the late 1940s through early 50s. He set the pace and the tempo in, in many ways. He could play jazz, a big concert stuff, Dixieland, whatever you wanted to play, he would play, plus always his own interpretation. To his daughter Georgie, George Rock was a delightful, loving father that she didn't get to see enough of due to his frequent touring. She only gradually realized the high regard he had earned from his fellow musicians. Over the years, I have had especially trumpet players climb over chairs, climb up onto anything to shake the hand of the daughter of the guy. Georgie says her father had always spoken fondly of his hometown, and in 1987, George Rock returned to Farmer City as the Grand Marshal for the town's sesquicentennial parade. A short time later, Rock traveled to Farmer City again, this time, his daughter said, to stay. He packed up a little trailer with anything that was important to him, and him and his dog got in the car and drove across the United States to go home, and he just didn't ever want to leave there again. 
But just months after his return to Farmer City, George Rock was dead at age 68 due to complications from diabetes. Today, George Rock's remains are buried next to his parents in the town cemetery. Their shared gravestone includes an inscription noting Rock's association with Spike Jones and his enduring Christmas hit. I'm Jim Meadows, Illinois Public Media. The marching band at Western Illinois University is engaged in a heavy competition that could earn it new musical equipment. Rich Egger explains. Metallica is a hugely successful heavy metal band, but for this contest, its music is being played in a different style. Listening to the Marching Leathernecks performing Enter Sandman, one of Metallica's best known hits. This was recorded during a football halftime show for Western's entry in the inaugural Metallica Marching Band Competition for Whom the Band Tolls. WIU is going up against other small and mid sized universities. And Associate Director of Bands, Matt Thomas, says Western is one of five finalists in that division. Thomas believes Metallica's music transcribes well for marching band. Sometimes when <laughs> when certain pop music is too repetitive, it doesn't translate well without lyrics. But Metallica, their music has such a breadth of diversity and approaches and that sort of thing that it, it actually lended pretty well to marching band. Thomas says there are two ways Western's video can earn a prize. One is by winning over a professional adjudication panel that includes marching band directors and the members of Metallica. The other category is fan favorite for whatever college band gets the most votes online. The voting continues until 11.59 p.m. on December 31st. People can visit MetallicaMarchingBand.com for details on how to vote for the marching leathernecks. Rich Egger reporting. We'll be right back with more of Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The 988 Suicide Prevention and Crisis Lifeline has received more than 5 million calls, texts, and chats in its first year. Still, surveys show most people in the U.S. do not even know it exists. The Biden administration announced a new service in an effort to expand 988's reach. It's an American Sign Language service for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. Now those folks can reach out for help if they're feeling suicidal or going through emotional distress or a substance use-related crisis. And on the other end of the line would be someone who speaks sign language, no need for an interpreter. 
Rebecca Smith with Side Effects Public Media reports from Missouri that advocates hope this new service will expand access to culturally competent care. Good morning or good afternoon. There was a slight crisp in the air as dozens of people gathered in Peace Park. They came to celebrate a year of the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline being available at the simple number 988 and to announce a new American Sign Language video phone service for folks who are deaf and hard of hearing that will be provided by only two groups in the country. One of them is Columbia-based Deaf Lead. Local artist Adrian Luther Johnson was there. I am doing the mural that honors 988. Um, nobody here is doing small talk. It's all actual conversations about mental health and reducing the stigma around suicide prevention and having the 988 line be present in a playful way today so that later people think of it top of mind without having to think, I'm not there yet. I don't need that as a resource because I don't feel that way. Next to Luther Johnson's mural was another large sheet of plywood where people could write their own messages of encouragement and hope. Things like you matter more than you know, and time heals. Lashana Samuel stopped by to share. What brought me out here today was the need for mental health across all uh, people, especially youth nowadays. They're faced with so many challenges that we never grew up with. And so I think it's important to know that don't wait until there's a crisis, right? So you feel like you want to harm yourself, even if you're having a bad day and you want someone to talk to who's maybe someone that hasn't heard you a million times already, go ahead and pick up the phone and call and text, video chat. They have those options. Inclusion and art seem to be central themes of the event. Hunter McGrath is a local artist from Fulton, and she was drawing words of hope with their corresponding signs in chalk on sidewalks throughout Peace Park. I did at the beginning, I did the sign for continue, and I wrote keep on going on it. Uh, it is important to always ask for help, even if you don't think that what you need is worth the help. So if someone is in crisis who is deaf and hard of hearing, they can now call in and be connected to someone who speaks their native language and understands their community. Saul Romero is with Deaf Lead. He's heard here through an interpreter. It's going to make a profound impact in our community. You know, one of the first steps to equitable access for deaf people. It's history happening in the making. Deaf Lead is here for deaf and hard of hearing people no matter what your style of communication is. We're here to support you. We care about you. We want you to give us a chance. Reach out before you do something you can't come back from. You matter. It doesn't matter what you look like, what kind of crisis situation you're in. You matter. 988's new ASL crisis services can be accessed by pressing the ASL Now button on 988lifeline.org or by calling 800-273-8255 on a phone with video capabilities. I'm Rebecca Smith.
Too much nitrogen and phosphorus can make water sources dangerous. Lindsay Jones has more on a report that comes out every two years detailing nutrient pollution in Illinois waterways, and the problem is getting worse. Every summer, there's a part of the Gulf of Mexico that's essentially dead. This dead zone is around where water from the Mississippi River begins flowing into the Gulf. It's an area where there's not enough oxygen in the water to sustain life, meaning fish and other forms of marine life that enter the area can die. It forms because there's nutrient pollution flowing into the Gulf, too many phosphates and nitrates. But it can be a problem here at home, too. The nutrient issue in Illinois is negatively impacting drinking water for massive amounts of people throughout the state. That's Elliot Clay of the Illinois Environmental Council. He says excess phosphates and nitrates in water across the state isn't just a health issue, but also a taxpayer issue. You're paying to clean it. The prevalence of nutrients in water and like rivers and streams and those kind of things, like the higher those concentrations are, the more money that we as taxpayers are going to have to fork over to clean it up. Back in 2008, the federal EPA told 12 states that border the Mississippi River that they had to develop plans to reduce the amount of nutrient pollution going into the river. The hope was to eventually reduce the size of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Illinois' strategy for reducing this kind of pollution went into effect in 2015. And every two years since then, the state has issued a report detailing its progress toward those goals. We have a lofty goal of reducing both nutrients by 45%. That's Megan Baskerville, the Ag Program Director for Environmental Advocacy Group, The Nature Conservancy. And since 2015, we have only increased the amount of nutrients um, heading out of our waterways. Baskerville says not only has the goal for reducing this kind of pollution not yet been met, but the sources of pollution have shifted as well. In 2015, the amount of excess phosphorus in Illinois waterways came from both agricultural sources and places like water treatment plants. Water treatment plants are an example of what the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency calls a point source a single identifiable source for pollution, and they're not the problem that they used to be. Since then, though, the point source sector has reduced their load significantly. So now agriculture owns the dominant uh, piece of the pie, if you will, for both of the nutrients. Baskerville says the shift has happened due to regulation. Places like water treatment plants have had to change what they do because of regulatory practices. Permits from the state EPA, for instance, were changed to have more stringent requirements. They live and die by that permit, and the agency was able to change that to help meet these goals. So it was a very domino effect, if you will, of how to get to these goals in that sector, and that tool does not exist in the ag sector. The state's interim goal is to reduce the phosphorus and nitrogen loads in the water by 45%. But this year's report on the goal progress showed that the five-year average for nitrogen loads increased by nearly 5%, and phosphorus loads increased 35%, both annually. So in that sense, this year's report didn't contain information that was particularly surprising to environmental advocates who've been following this issue. Here's Elliot Clay of the Illinois Environmental Council again. And it was not a surprise to any of our partners. We are continuing to not make progress on the what is called the non-point source side of this, which is essentially just like agriculture is the big thing. Robert Hirschfeld of the environmental nonprofit Prairie Rivers Network says he was also not surprised. This kind of uh, polluted runoff, it's not regulated, right? There's just, there aren't rules about it. So a lot of industries 
in the United States and Illinois, um, their pollution is regulated. There really aren't laws or limits on agricultural pollution. The solution to this issue, as is the case with so many things, depends on who's proposing it. Elliot Clay says the Illinois Environmental Council is looking for opportunities to find synergy with the private sector, government agencies, and other environmental groups to highlight cost savings programs and other things that will boost conservation practices across the state's farming groups. Most of these conservation programs are opt-in, meaning they're voluntary. We need to start getting very innovative on the voluntary side of this. And I think that that's the easiest thing that we can do in the short term is for everybody to have kind of a kumbaya moment and start thinking about how do we get more state resources to get conservation on the ground. For Robert Hirschfeld at the Prairie Rivers Network, proposed solutions should involve a little more teeth. Farming industry, agriculture industry is very powerful. Very few politicians in Illinois are willing to challenge it, despite its bad record on water pollution. Right. It is big industry, and it deserves to be regulated the way other big industries are regulated. Lindsay Jones with that report. The dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that the runoff contributes to shrank a bit this summer. It came in about 200 square miles smaller, but still spans over 3,000 miles. You may think Illinois winters are warmer than they used to be, and you'd be right. In Illinois, the average winter temperature is about 5 degrees above what it was in 1970. Shayla Farzan reports how warmer winters are changing the way some farmers grow their crops. On a frigid winter morning, Liz Grazenack cracks open the door of a greenhouse, letting out a rush of warm, earthy-smelling air. She carefully peels back a layer of cloth on the ground, revealing rows of tiny sprouts. That's the delphinium plants. These little dudes right there. (laughs) This is just one of four greenhouses that Grazenack has at her organic farm near Columbia, Missouri. Inside, she's able to grow delicate, high-value crops, like flowers and spinach. Grazenack says these greenhouses help protect plants from extreme swings in weather something she's noticed is happening more frequently. We don't get a couple of inches of snow. We get 18 inches of snow all at once. And then in five days, it's 70 degrees again. Like, that's devastating to a vegetable farm. Data show extreme weather is just one of the many effects of climate change across the U.S. For farmers like Grazenack, another major change is warmer winters. The four hottest Januaries on record have all occurred since 2016. Amy Butler is a climate scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She says winter is warming faster than any other season, based on data going back to the late 1800s. But, she says, cold weather will still happen. Less cold does not mean never cold. It just means that really cold weather will happen less often and be less severe or persistent in the future. These warmer winters have ripple effects in agriculture, says Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub in Ames, Iowa. One of the effects is on soils. Toddy says Midwestern soil is fertile because historically it freezes every year, which stops bacteria and other organisms from breaking it down. As the winter's warm, we have a longer period of time where that is unfrozen or we have more of the area that it never freezes. So the soils can kind of break down. So we start losing more of that good uh, nutrient value in those soils. When soils don't freeze, it can also help crop pests survive the winter and allow them to expand into new regions. 
But when it comes to agriculture in the Midwest, one of the most noticeable results of climate change right now is longer growing seasons. Richard Oswald's family has been farming in northwest Missouri on the Nebraska border since the 1840s. When I was a kid, my dad had a firm rule, you don't plant corn before the 12th of May. And the reason for that is the right time to plant corn is when oak leaves are the size of squirrel's ears. That's when the season starts. <laughs> now, Oswald says, he and other farmers plant corn a month earlier, in mid-April. That's partly because they're planting hardier varieties now. But he says the weather also warms up a lot sooner than it used to. These longer growing seasons can result in higher yields. Still, Oswald says he worries climate change will make farming much harder in the future. He's been thinking about it more and more since 2019, when catastrophic flooding swamped his farm and childhood home. From his pickup truck, he points to where the water stood for months. From the Nebraska bluffs behind us to the Missouri bluffs in front of us, it was all water. Oswald lost about 26,000 bushels of corn in that flood, some of which is still rotting on the ground at his farm. He says farmers rely on science and data every day to grow their crops, and the data show climate change is happening. But in his community, not many people will discuss it. They don't want to use the word climate change. Yeah, it's been hot, but I don't want to call it climate change. But, but I wouldn't say it's climate change. Having these frank discussions is hard, he says, but it will help them better prepare for what's coming. I'm Shayla Farzan. We're out of time for Statewide this week. Thanks for being along. Join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Find us where you get your podcasts, through this station's website, and at NPR Illinois. You can also get our shows through the NPR app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois public radio stations. 